Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here today. And uh, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. That was my that was my pre. Good morning. Now that everyone is quiet. All right. It's good to. It's good to be in the Lord's house today, and uh, it is warm, and we have the fans going, and uh, it's still not enough, but it's good to be in the house of the Lord and uh, to worship, and I have a, a couple of different announcements this morning, uh, number one being our luncheon after church, and uh, we will be having our communion service, and then we'll be having uh, lunch uh, immediately following. And so we'd love to invite everybody to, uh, to come out and, and, and fellowship together. Um, and we have uh, this Friday and Saturday night, uh, we're going to be having the uh, prayer night and evangelism training, and Ian had uh, mentioned uh, something about that, uh, I think maybe last week. Did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Let me know if you want to come. Okay, great. Let Ian know if uh, you'd like to come. And uh, we had our uh, deacons meeting yesterday. We discussed a little bit about the um, uh, community cookout on the 20th of this month. And uh, so we're going to be having a slip and slide and all kinds of things. And so invite your friends, neighbors, and uh, those around you uh, that uh, that maybe don't come to church very often, but uh, they might be interested in in spending some time with us out on the lawn. Uh, any other announcements this morning? Yes, Terry. Mm. All right. Thank you, Terry. Any other announcements this morning? All right. Well, then let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your house today. Thank you for each person that is here this morning and we obviously don't know each and every situation here this morning, but we thank you for the faithfulness of your people here. And we think of those uh, that aren't here this morning for whatever reason, maybe they're ill or away. We pray that you'd watch over them and bring them back to us. We think of those that maybe haven't been here with us for a while and for whatever reason that uh, they aren't here. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in their lives. And we thank you for how you do work in our lives and how you, you provide for us and how you direct us and guide us. We pray that you would help us to continually be relying on you and that you would help us to follow the path that you would have for us. We pray that you would watch over our service this morning 
pray that you'd watch over Ian. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through him this morning. And that everything we say and do would be honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Psalm 33. If you'd like to follow along, Psalm 33. We'll be reading from the, the, the Pew Bible, the NIV. Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars and puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, his pur the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord, he is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Amen. And now if you would turn with me or to number six in your green book which is towards the front of your book, uh, number six. And let's stand and sing, Praise the Lord. peaks, you paint the evening sky with wonders, the earth that is your throne. 
from desert to the sea, all nature testifies your splendor. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, sing His greatness, all creation. Praise the Lord, raise your voice to heights and all you depths, from furthest east to west. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You reached into the dust, in love your spirit breathed. You formed us in your very likeness. To know your wondrous works, to tell your wondrous deeds, to join the everlasting would come forward for the morning offering, please, and if you have uh, any, any prayer uh, requests or prayer re uh, slips, you can uh, put them in the offering plate as the ushers go by.
Remain standing. We'll turn to 611. He hideth my soul. Amen. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. 611. Shadows a dry, thirsty land. 
church. It's good to see you all here this morning. We're going to take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come to you to worship you because you are our creator and our king. As the psalmist says, every day we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are good to all, and your mercy is over all that you have made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. As we come to you this morning, Father, we are made aware of our sin and of our need for you. As David prayed in Psalm 51, we know our transgressions and we are ever aware of our sin. We understand that we've sinned against you and that we've done what's evil in your sight so that if you were to condemn us, you would be just and right. We confess, Father, that we've been sinners even from birth like all mankind. We grieve, Father, that we have grieved you by our thoughts and our actions and our deeds. And we ask, Father, that you would have mercy on us according to your steadfast love, that according to your abundant mercy that you would blot out our transgressions, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, and cleanse us from our sin. Let's silently confess our sins to God. We thank you, Father, for the, all the promises you've made in us, you've made in Jesus to us in Scripture, and especially for these words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the true rest that you give to us and to all who come to you in faith. We thank you, Father, for the the rest from our works and from sin that you give us in Jesus, that you've actually cleansed us of our sin by his death, by his blood, and that you've given us new life in him, in his resurrection, all of us who have come to believe. In your death, Lord Jesus, we find forgiveness. In your resurrection, we find life. By your blood, we are cleansed. By your body, we are healed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you've done for us. And we thank you for the new life that you've given us in your name. We pray, Father, that you'd be at work in the rest of this service, that you'd watch over us, that you'd make us bold and confident in the faith, that you'd lead us to every good work, and that as we walk this pilgrim path, you would watch over us, that you would keep us faithful, and that you keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Let's pray together as our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. If you would, let's stand together, and we'll sing Psalm 4. It's in the back of your book. Uh, The Psalms are in the back of the book, Psalm 4. Set your heart on me. 
see your light, let your face upon us shine. You pour gladness in my heart, more than feasting and new wine. In your peace I rest and sleep, you alone my soul shall open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 108. Psalm 108. And some of you will say to me, what happened to Genesis 13? (laughs) Well, I'm sorry to deviate from our path. We'll return to Genesis 13 uh, next week. But I committed about a month ago to fill in for Garrett Susi at Christ the King Church this afternoon, and they asked me to preach the psalm that they're, they're preaching through the psalms. And so I decided not to write two sermons this week. So we're in, we're in Psalm 108 this morning, and I promise we'll return to our regular, regularly scheduled programming <laughs> next week. Psalm 108 is a psalm of David. Psalm 108 is an interesting psalm in that it's, uh, it's sort of a greatest hits album. What David does in Psalm 108 is he actually takes portions of two other psalms and remixes them in, in a new psalm. And so the first five verses of Psalm 108 are taken from uh, Psalm 67, uh, 67 uh, 57 rather, Uh, And then the the second half of the psalm is taken out of Psalm 60. And so this is an interesting thing, and it'll change a little bit how um, how we go through and read the psalm. What I love about Psalm 108 is how David opens. Um, And he opens with this just, this um, salvo, this this cannonade of praise. Um, He opens in in 108, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. And this is quite a statement of praise. It's quite a thing to say. And when we hear those words, we might imagine that David, when he said them, uh, was at some high point after some great victory, that he's saying these words maybe at his coronation or after he's defeated some some giant. But no, we actually understand if we go back to Psalm 57, where this passage comes from, that when David first said these words, he was in a cave hiding from Saul. God had called him to be the king of Israel, but Saul was still on the throne and jealous and after him. And so there's a couple of occasions where David ends up literally hiding in a cave for fear of his life, quite literally hiding under a rock. And that's when these words were originally written. 
David hiding under a rock for fear of his life, and he comes out swinging, My heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. What has to happen in a person's heart that at the lowest point, hiding under a rock, they come out swinging with, my heart is steadfast, O God? What kind of heart? How, here's really our question this morning. How can we do that? Because some of us look at that and it's like, I don't know, I don't know how that happens. Right? In our, in our weak and sinful flesh, when we come up against difficulty, when we come up against threats, our, in our weakness, our natural reaction is to fold in fear right? and to cower and to hold back, and our praise can become muted. But somehow David keeps praise alive, and he's, he's not just praising God. He's doing it confidently. He's doing it boldly. And so my question this morning is, how can we continue in confidence and boldness in God even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of overwhelming odds? And the answer is going to be, in some ways, quite simple. Sometimes it's the simplest things that are the most difficult to put into practice. That we actually can continue in confidence in God in the face of great difficulty by trusting in our faithful God. Specifically by trusting in the faithfulness of God. We're going to see that's what David does, and we're going to see that that's actually what we can do, even in the face of overwhelming odds, even in the face of great difficulty, that we can remain steadfast in confident praise, even in the face of great difficulty, by trusting in our faithful God. Let's read the psalm together, and then we'll pray. Psalm 108, a song, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that as we study these words of David, which you inspired by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us to pray. And that you would teach us to walk, not in fear, uh, but in boldness. 
trusting your promises, trusting your faithfulness, that we would learn to walk boldly even in the face of great difficulty by trusting in you. We pray, Father, that you'd be with us this morning, that your will would be done, that you'd have your way among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we can walk in steadfastness, in confidence, even in the face of great difficulty, by trusting in the faithfulness of God. So let's start at the beginning. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. So this is David's song under the rock, right? And it's this great joyful outburst. Charles Spurgeon calls this psalm uh, a warrior's mourning song, which I quite like. There's David hiding under a rock. He says, Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. So it's as if David is up at 4.30 in the morning and the sun's not up yet. And he's saying, get the band together. Get the, get the guitars and the drums. We're, we're going to make a joyful noise to God. And it's as if he's shouting out to the sun, Son, you're not up yet. Let's praise the Lord. <laughs> he said, wake up, son. I will awake the dawn. A warrior's morning song. Verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. He's saying, God, it's, it's not enough for me to praise you here under my rock. I want all the nations to know. I want all the peoples to know how great you are, God. He continues down in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He's praising God at the top of his lungs. His heart is just bursting. And again, it's like, how, David? You're running for your life with a couple of buddies, starving in the desert, hiding in a cave under a rock, and your heart is steadfast? What's going on here? How is this possible? We know it wasn't just David's disposition. You read the Psalms, and he's a real morose guy at times. He's, he gets down easy. But at this point, he's praising God. And why? What ammunition does he use? Verse 4 is the key. We'll start in verse 3. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Why? How? Verse 4. For this reason. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Face to face with one of the greatest difficulties David has ever faced, where, where is he looking? Where are his eyes fixed? On the Lord and on his steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice this little coupling in verse 4. This is how they write Hebrew poetry. They do parallel lines. And sometimes they're, it's basically saying the same thing in two ways. And that's kind of what he's doing here. Your steadfast love... Great above the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Right? Steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what David's eyes are fixed on. This word steadfast love is a really interesting word. Um, it's translated steadfast love, two words in English, but it's really just one word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word chesed. chesed. And um, sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated covenant love. And it's a really amazing word. There's not really an exact English equivalent, but steadfast love is good. That's a good translation. My, my um, Old Testament professor called it love with boots on. <laughs> love with boots on. 
It's, it's love that carries through with what it promises. It's love that does what it says it will do. It's covenant love. It's love that makes covenant. It's not middle school crush for a week love, right? Which is sort of how our culture thinks about love. It's sort of this ephemeral thing. It comes and it goes and it's sort of, it's based on whim. No, this is based on covenant. This is based on promise. This isn't middle school crush, crush love. This is after 40 years of marriage, caring for your, your dying spouse for a year kind of love. This is love that does what it says it will do. This is for better or for worse, for richer or in poorer, for in sickness and in health kind of love. This is covenant love. And that's the kind of love that David sees in God. Right? They're hiding under a rock. His eyes are fixed on God loves me but not in a fleeting kind of way. Because if that was the way that God loved us, hiding under a rock, it'd be pretty easy to think, yeah, God's abandoned me. And David's tempted with that. You read the Psalms. He's tempted to think that sometimes, right? And then he reminds himself, no, your steadfast love is great above the heavens. This is the God that we serve. He's not a fickle God. He doesn't go back and forth. It's not, he loves me, he loves me not. It's, if he has said it, it's done. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. And David had the promises of God to hold fast to. Remember, the prophet had anointed David king. You are God's chosen king. He's going to make you king. And so David held on to that. If he's promised it, he'll carry it through. If he's fixed his steadfast love on me, he will not let me go. And I love this image. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. It's like he's saying, if I, if I went up as high as I could, I couldn't actually go so high as to get over it. Right? Or if I went as far as I could in one direction or the other, your steadfast love is so great, I can't actually get around it. Wherever I go, I just keep running up against your steadfast love and faithfulness, God. It's like there's no way to escape it. He reaches to the heavens. His faithfulness, again, sort of as a synonym here. God's faithful. He does what he says he will do. He carries through. He keeps his promises. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And it's only in understanding God's absolute faithfulness to his people that we can have hope when we're under the rock, that we can have hope when we're up against the most difficult thing we've ever faced. Because even there, the steadfast love of God follows us. And we can trust there the promises of God that for those who love him and are called according to his good purposes, he works all things for good. That if we belong to Christ, that if we are sons and daughters of God, that even through the valley of the shadow of death, he is there and he leads us. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. An additional layer to this that's added because of this setting is that in Psalm 108, David is singing this song, praying this prayer years after he wrote it. So this is from Psalm 57, which was before he was king. Psalm 60, which starts being quoted in verse 6. was was, David wrote that well into his reign as king. It was years later. So we don't know exactly when he compiled Psalm 108, but it's at least years 
um, after uh, he, he first uttered these first words. And so what David is doing is he's actually singing again the songs of his youth. He's singing again his cave song, remembering God's faithfulness to him there. Only now, instead of singing it by faith, he's singing it in a way by sight, right? Because he's looking back and he's saying, I trusted God, I trusted that he would deliver me, I trusted his promise that he would make me king, and look, he did, right? And he's able to go back and sing the song from the cave, only this time with sort of a new level of joy because he understands, and he, he promised and he was faithful. He promised and he, and he was faithful. And this is a model for us for, for how we can remind ourselves of God's faithfulness, actually by, by remembering God's faithfulness from our youth. And whether we've been following Christ for a week, right, or for 40 years, if we have any experience at all with the Lord, we've, we've come to experience and to know his faithfulness. I'm a very incon inconsistent journaler, but I do write journal entries every now and again. I'm not very good at it, but it's, it, it's even in my inconsistency, it's helpful because I can go back and open up my journal from years ago and look at the stuff I was wrestling through then and see the Lord was so faithful. He was so good. And I didn't know how, how things would turn out. But to see, no, the Lord answers prayer. The Lord is faithful. He's good to his people across time. And this is a way in which we can actually assure ourselves to see, no, he brought me through that. And he brought me through that. And yeah, I was praying that in the cave. I was barely holding on to faith there. But look at what he's done since. And, and this is a discipline that David practiced and models for us here. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In verse six, the tone of the psalm changes because he's quoting here no longer from Psalm 57, but now from Psalm 60. And he's doing this quite intentionally. He has a, a purpose for this. Sort of frustrating reading some commentators on this psalm. And some of them basically said, see Psalm 57 and 60. Um, and, and I think that overlooks what the Holy Spirit was doing in inspiring David to take these two psalms, incomplete, right, parts of these psalms, and put them together in a new way. I think the Holy Spirit has something unique to teach us here in what, in what David is doing. And so in verse 6, instead of, because 1 through 5, it's this great salvo of praise, right? God, you are so good. It's proclamation. And then it shifts, verse 6, he begins to petition God, begins to make requests of God. Verse 6, that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer me. He's crying out to God, Lord, help me, save me. But it's a very different context than Psalm 60. If you read Psalm 60, everything that comes before this verse is despair. It's David crying. It's like, I don't know where you've gone, Lord. I don't know what you're doing, which is where we are sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> right? The first few verses of Psalm 60, Lord, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing. I can't figure it out. I feel like I'm in the dark. And then by the end of the psalm, it moves to light. Right? David turns to God. But here, he's repackaged it. He's put it in a different context. Now, instead of praying, Lord, save me after despair, it's, Lord, save me after you are so faithful, which is a different sort of thing, right? 
I don't think David's praying here in a sense of desperation like, Lord, I don't know if you're actually going to save me. I think he's praying in the context of confidence. Lord, your faithfulness, I can't get around it. It's inevitable. You are so good. He's remembering God's past faithfulness. And so in light of all that, I think now he's praying, Lord, save me. Right? Not like, not like, you know, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but save me because I know you're faithful to your people and I know you will. I know you will deliver me. And in verse 7, he turns to God's promises. He turns to confidence, right? Verse 7, God has promised in his holiness. Again, what is he looking to? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. God, I know you've made me promises, and I'm going to actually lean on them. I'm actually going to put weight on those things. So what had God promised David? With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Maybe we've never heard of Shechem and Sukkoth. I had to look them up on a map. These are, these are places in the promised land. Okay? So the promise that David is invoking here is that God would take the promised land and give it to his people. Divide it up between the tribes. And this goes all the way back to Abram. Right, which, which we've been talking about, the promises God made to Abram to give him, a, making of him a great nation and to give him a land, right? this physical land where the people were to dwell. And so David is, is I think, invoking that promise. God has promised, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. God's promised to give his people the land. Verse eight, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter. Gilead is a, is a region in the promised land in the north and on the other side of the Jordan. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Judah, these are three of the tribes of Israel. And between these four places, you've basically covered the whole of the promised land. I think, I think the Lord's using these, these four place names as kind of a shorthand for the whole of the land and all of the people in the land. Um, so the Lord's saying, Gilead, mine. Manasseh, mine. Ephraim, one of the tribes, is my helmet. Right? The Lord's clothing himself like a warrior with his people. Say, I'm going to go to war with you and for you. Judah is my scepter. What do you do with a scepter? You reign. Right? It's kings that have scepters. And what's Judah? Well, Judah is the kingly tribe. That's the tribe that David comes from. And so God's promising, this land, it's mine, I'm going to divide it up, and I'm going to reign over it with the king, and I'm going to clothe myself with, with, with this armor, right, this helmet of Ephraim, I'm going to battle. God's clothing himself like a warrior king, and he's saying, I'm going to give my people my land. I'm going to do what I've promised. And then verse 9, Moab, Edom, Philistia, what are these? These are, the, these are the nations around. Some context here for Psalm 60. Um, when these words were originally penned, it was during a time of war, just after David had come to power, and he was sort of having to prove himself in war against all the nations around, including Moab and Edom and Philistia. And apparently the greater context of Psalm 60 is that David and Israel have just had some kind of defeat 
something has gone wrong. That becomes obvious in verse 11. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. He's had just some kind of defeat. And so in the face of defeat, in the face of difficulty, surrounded by these these, um, these powers, and really they were coming at Israel from all sides. If you look at a map of what the, the kingdom was like, you've got Philistia, and you've got, um, and you've got Edom, and you've got Moab. They're, they're coming at him from the north. They're coming at him from the south. They're coming at him from the east. They're coming at him from all over the place. He's surrounded. He's defeated. What's the natural reaction? Help! But instead, what does he do? He looks to the faithfulness of God. He says, verse 7, God has promised. He looks to the promises of God. He asks, what has God promised me? What has God promised his people? God has promised us this land. He promised it to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's renewed that promise in every generation. He's promised it to us. And David, as the king, is saying, God has promised it to me. I'm the scepter of Judah. God is going to deliver us this land because he said he would do it. And then he puts the nations in their place, right? Against David, the nations are pretty, pretty scary, Verse 12, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. David versus Edom, Philistia, Moab, worrisome. God against Moab, Edom, Philistia, what does the Lord say here, verse 9? Moab is my wash basin. I wash my dirty hands in Moab. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. I throw my sandals in your general direction, Edom. Throw my dirty socks over there. This is, this is trash talk. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. The Lord's not threatened by these nations. He's the king of the universe. He made the world. And that's what David is remembering. He's looking to God. He's like, I know what God has promised, and I know God isn't threatened by these people. And that's why, even in the face of overwhelming odds, David stands confident. He stands with his head held high. Again, not because he has confidence in himself. That becomes clear. Verse 10, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? David's getting ready to go out and to to fight against the Edomites. He's the king. He's the one who's supposed to lead the people. But he's looking around saying, who's going to lead me? Because David realizes vain is the salvation of man. He can't do it on his own. And so he looks to God. Verse 12, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. He's looking to God. Again, how... How can we have confidence? How can we walk in praise of God even in the midst of difficulty, even surrounded by threats, and we're like, I have no idea how I'm going to deal with this? By looking to God and the faithfulness of God. So what has God promised us? Of course, David was leaning on these land promises. God's going to bring us into the land. God has unfolded more layers of salvation history since the days of David. He's shown us more about what he's promised us. 
The writer of Hebrews, in talking about the Old Testament believers, said that they are all actually looking for a better country, that is, for a heavenly one. Um, that there's actually something greater in store. That we actually have, have heard and believed greater promises even than David had. Surer promises, firmer promises even than David had. So what are those promises? Well, let's think about the scepter of Judah for a minute. Jade, uh, David, of course, is the scepter of, of Judah. He's, he's the king that God used in his generation to fight for his people and to reign over his people. And what happened to David? He's dead. But what did God promise David? We've talked about these promises before, that God promised David I'm going to keep a king on your throne forever. And I'm actually going to give you a son who will reign eternally on your throne, David. An eternal scepter of Judah. An eternal king who would bring victory to his people. And the whole Old Testament is filled with whispers of this Messiah king. All the pages are rustling with the rumors of the coming of this Messiah, the coming of this king, and we know who he is. His name is Jesus, of the tribe of Judah, of the line of Jesse, son of David, the king, the king who will reign forever. And what did this Jesus do? this great king do when he came and what, what has he promised us? He came, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, bearing our sin. Remember Isaiah's promises about this king? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. This is Jesus the great king, the eternal king, the scepter of Judah who brings us victory actually by his death. And then not just by his death, but by his resurrection. Right? Conquering not just Edom and Philistia, conquering sin and death. And he didn't just rise again from the dead, he's now ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Psalm 110, just, just a page to your right, most quoted verse in all the New Testament. This refers to Jesus, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, Christ, the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus even now is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's not taking a break. He's reigning. He's the king. He's sitting on a throne. And what has Jesus given us to do? to be about his kingdom work. That's why we use that word. It's because Jesus is the king and we're working to expand his kingdom on earth in his power. What's the job he's given us? Go out into all the nations, disciple them, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. The vision's gone global. He doesn't just say, go out into the promised land. Jesus, in Acts 1, he says, Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, 
and then the ends of the earth. Jesus' plan is world conquest. World conquest. And that's actually our job, not by the sword, but by the sword of the Spirit, by the preaching of the gospel, by the going forth of the word of God. And sometimes I think we can go about that work with a sort of sense of pessimism. Look around at the world. We look at the hard ground of New England, of Maine, of Liberty, the hard ground even of the hearts of our friends and our neighbors, and we can grow easily discouraged. And we, we can look around at the waywardness of our culture and just wonder, Lord, is this, what can be done? And I I worry, and I even hear some Christians speak like, well, what can we do after all? As long as we just sort of weather the storm and then Jesus will come someday. And I don't think that's David's attitude in the face of his enemies. And I don't think that's the attitude that Christ has called us to. Our God has given us great promises. Surrounding that great commission, what did Jesus say? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the king. He says, go therefore. And what does he say after the great commission? Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We have great promises to lean on. God has promised in his holiness Hear the words of Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's not a defensive war, that's an offensive war. That's the church actually banging down the gates of hell with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ who has defeated sin and death in the grave. Amen? Amen? Amen. And so we we can go out from here not with a sense of defeat, even in the face of overwhelming odds, even under the rock, even surrounded by enemies. God has promised in his holiness, with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. Jesus, the scepter of Judah, is seated at the right hand of the Father. God has promised in his holiness. Let these words be on our lips from now until our deaths or until the return of Christ, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And may our lips and our lives be characterized by the attitude of this warrior's mourning song, not with defeat, but with joy in the the knowledge of the sure victory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish all that you intend it to. We pray, Father, that you would give us hearts of confidence and of boldness in the finished work of Jesus and in his victory. We know, Lord, we we are still in the midst of battle, and we do battle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil at work in the world and in the heavenly places. But we do so knowing that you are the King, Lord Jesus, that you possess all authority, and we do so knowing your great and wonderful promises. 
your promises for your victory in the world and also your great promises for your care and provision for us in our lives, even in the, even in the intimate details of our lives. And so we pray, Father, that you would teach us to walk in boldness, that this warrior song would be on our lips. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask Kevin to come forward. Um, we're going to go and, uh, and take the Lord's Supper together, but first I'd like to sing a hymn together as we prepare our hearts. You can open your, your uh, hymnals to number 311. My favorite song, Hallelujah, What a Savior, Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, 311. Let's sing uh, the first and the last verses of Hallelujah, What a Savior, verses 1 and 5. go to the Lord's table now. Um, the Lord's Supper is a gift. It's a gift from Jesus, and he left it to the church, and he told us to do it. And Christians all around the world, even today, are breaking bread with one another, gathering together, and breaking bread and drinking the cup as a way of taking part together in Christ's body and blood. The Lord's Supper is an outward sign of an inward grace. All of us who have spiritually in and inwardly taken part in Jesus' body and blood. If we've trusted in Christ, his death is ours, right? In his death, our sin is dead. We're dead with him. And in his resurrection, we're alive in him. And so we eat the bread and drink the cup outwardly and physically, in a way that we can touch and taste, as a way of remembering all of what Jesus has done for us, all that we are in him, and as a way of proclaiming his death until he returns. And so the communion table is a family table. So the communion table is open to all who've trusted in Christ. This table is open to, to all who have come to him in faith and in repentance. And so if that's you, you're welcome at this table. This table is for you. And if that's not you, I would want you to know that this table can be open to you if you would come to Christ. Um, if you're not a Christian this morning, we actually, we'd ask that you wouldn't come to the table. But I, I want you to know that the, for, that the forgiveness and life that Jesus offers is open to all who would come. 
And if you would but come to Christ in faith, you too can be forgiven your sins, reconciled to God, brought to the Father, and given the promise of eternal life forever with him. It's available to all who would come. He, he hasn't turned a single person away. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, warns that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So this is a joyful celebration of the gospel of Christ, but we also want to take it seriously. Um, we're going to do our, our communion service a little bit differently this morning. Um, some of you were at our Maundy Thursday service, and so we're going to do it sort of like that. And so what I'd encourage you to do is that when you're ready to take the Lord's Supper, that you come up around this side um, and actually come up to the table. And Kevin and I will be here with the elements to offer you. You can take the bread and take a cup. And you can either eat and drink up here, or you can go back to your pew and eat and drink. Um, and um, what I'd encourage you to do is that before you come, that you take a moment to prepare your heart, to consider all that Christ has done for you, um, if there's something between you and a brother or sister in this room that you'd go and you'd make that right before you come to the table. Um, and then after we're done, we'll all stand together and sing like we usually do, thank you, Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.
often as you drink, eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ, our Savior, died. He was raised from the dead, and he is coming again. Amen? Let's stand together. We'll sing, thank you, Lord. It's on the back of your bulletin. Thank you, Lord, for saving my grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.